are standing by right now is the one and the only Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. <laughs> After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my go to my grave, testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? You go ahead and chop me. Give me a big chop. I'll sell. I'll give you my whole chest and everything. And then I'll look at you like this, and uh, then I'll punch you right in the mouth as hard as I can. <laughs> Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome uh, to yet another edition of Prime Time with Sean Mooney. I hope you've all had a great week. Thanks for tuning in once again. I uh, know that you have many, many choices out there, so please know how much I appreciate you listening week after week. Uh, this has been a little rough week for me. This You can probably tell my, my voice. It's uh, been a little under the weather, as we say. But uh, we are going to power through. You'll notice uh, when I'm talking to our guests this week that uh, you know the voice wasn't the greatest. But, uh, you know, we, we got to do this. Week after week, we want to keep bringing you great content. And we are coming off another great episode. Wow. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Deborah Maselli. Uh, better known as Medusa, or if you remember her from the WWE, Alundra Blaze. Uh, what an intriguing, I, I think that's the best word to describe her. What an intriguing person. I mean, amazing what she has accomplished so far in her life, because she's still going. She's still got a lot happening. And uh, not only did she blaze a trail for women in professional wrestling, uh, help put them on a path to equality in the business, as we are seeing today, uh, she then went on to get involved in the monster truck circuit and became, you know, never having driven one of those trucks ever before. You, know, you heard her tell the story. And if you haven't listened to uh, that episode, please do. It's it's a great one. But uh, we went on for, boy, over two hours, I think. But she talks about how uh, she got a phone call to come down and, and try out uh, one of these trucks just to, you know, see if she would be interested. And, uh, <laughs> went around the track, ran over a couple of cars, thought that they were going to throw her out of the arena there, and uh, they asked her to sign on, which she did for 17 years. She became a two-time champion. So what an amazing woman. Really enjoyed my conversation with Medusa. Uh, and I also hope you've been enjoying uh, the Network Classics we've been putting out. This is a new addition to the PTSM family. We have a new episode every single week. And uh, this week will be no exception. Uh, we've got the second episode of Raw, which just came out on Monday. Uh, in these network classics, though, we're just choosing different episodes from the uh, network, the WWE Network, and, and then I do a watch along with you. But uh, these I, I do separately, so you can listen to them whenever you want. All you have to do is you queue up uh, to the, uh, the start point, and then we just go off and, uh, and running. And uh, not only do I provide... Uh, you know, commentary on what's happening on the screen. You know, as I've said before, what's really been fun for me doing these is because, you know, a lot of that stuff disappears from your memory, especially when you get up in the years, uh, you know, 
I'm 60, guys. So I, you know, I've, I've forgotten a lot of things. But when I watch these, it comes back to me. And so I never really know what uh, what I'm going to come up with. But uh, so far, man, it's it's been a blast doing them because I've remembered things or I remember something about a certain personality and what they did. So uh, each episode is uh, very different from the next. And as I mentioned, uh, this week uh, we're doing uh, the second episode of Raw. And, uh, they, of course, that's the early beginnings of uh, what became or has become uh, you know, the, the longest-running episodic uh, uh, program on uh, cable television. And uh, Vince and Randy Savage, along with Rob Bartlett, are still doing the commentary for these. So uh, I had a blast doing it. I hope you'll uh, catch it. it, it uh, it's up already. And you can catch the uh, episode every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. That's when these are, are put up. All righty, let's get to the main event this week. A man who appreciated every single minute he was a part of the business of professional wrestling, and he did it all. Let's get to my conversation with one of the original four horsemen, J.J. Dillon. Ding, ding, ding. Hey, folks, the best way to describe my guest today is every man, because he has done everything in the world of professional wrestling, He's been a referee, a wrestler, a manager, an agent, an executive, a two-time Hall of Famer. See what I mean? He's done everything. Oh, and I should mention, he's an original member of the Four Horsemen. Welcome, J.J. Dillon. Hello, J.J. Hey, wow, that was a very nice introduction. Thank you very much. Well, it barely covers it. It barely covers it. Are you kidding me? All you've done? Yeah, I mean, I'm just... It, uh, I'm at this stage of my life where I look back and, and I, I just know that, that it's been a great career for me. And, but I also recognize that the reason I had any level of success was because I met good people along the way and, and they all embraced me and helped me. And now I'm sometimes pinched myself when I look that I've got two hall of fame rings and, and I just, uh, I, 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 as a 16-year-old kid in New Jersey, I fell in love with professional wrestling back. I mean, I'm going back to uh, Antonina Rocca and then, um, you know, Buddy Rogers and Bob Orton and Jeez. just dreamed that someday, you know, maybe that that this could happen for me and, and just uh, good fortune along the way. And all of a sudden, like I say, all these years later, I look back and, and um but I had a lot of help along the way. I really did. It wasn't. I was never the biggest, never the best, but nobody loved the business more than I did, and was willing to work any harder than I was. I was, and so I was rewarded for all of that. Well, I think you said so many people helped you along the way, and uh, because they wanted to. You know, you were somebody who had absolute respect, not just for the business, but for them, uh, the people you respected, and they returned it in kind many, many times. Uh, we're, you know, I want to talk about that and you know, the incredible wrestling career, just so many different things you did. But uh, I go back to the beginning here. And you know when I say what Trenton makes, the world takes. Wow, that's right on the, on the side of the bridge crossing the, the Delaware River. Trenton that's makes, right. the world takes. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, and I have uh, a really good friend um, who is from there and would often remind me of that. Now, you're going to love this, JJ, because... Like I said, you were an everyman, but maybe I should have described you as a utility player because I know one of your first loves was baseball. And my first job... Still is. Huh? 
still is. But uh, yeah, I Back then. I fell in love with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah, and in 1958, when the Dodgers uprooted and moved to California, and the Giants followed them, and the only ones that stayed here were the Yankees. And back in those days, this was before the internet. It was uh, um, before cable television, of course. So uh, I used to get up and get the morning paper. And because of the print deadline, because they were now based on the West Coast, it would only have the line score to about the third inning. So mm-hmm. it was hard to keep up the passion that I had for my Dodgers and and and. and you know, I think everything in life probably happens for a reason, and so that's what caused my my interest is to swing to the world of professional wrestling, which has worked out well. And uh, but I still have that passion for for baseball. Yeah, well, and uh, and you know, my first job was with Major League Baseball Productions. That's how I ended up back east because I did grow up out in Arizona, and just things happen. That's a long story, but I ended up back there working for Major League Baseball Productions. And uh, had the opportunity. At, we used to do this week in baseball, and you know, I was, would log, uh, you know, baseball games all day long. And uh, you know, of course, uh, that was the big show was Mel Allen. But um, yep. at the end of the year, we would do highlight films for all the teams. We did all uh, twenty six at the time, all those teams. And I had the great fortune to work. I did four Dodger highlight films when I eventually became a producer. So I did four Dodger highlight films and uh, got to do the 25-year history film. And so I had the chance. I got to meet all of these original Dodgers. Duke Snyder, I know you're a fan of. Yes. All these, and I'm telling you, that was such an incredible period of time in baseball history. Because uh, you talk about the Giants. They were there. And then yep. you had the Dodgers, and of course they all moved west. But what a what a time! And I don't know if you ever had the opportunity to go to uh, any of those games when you were a kid. But I, I just I, my yeah. my parents took me because I we used to watch the uh, the Dodgers on Channel Nine out mm-hmm. of uh, New York, and Happy Felton's not whole gang. And I I think my parents everything that I've been involved in. <laughs> whether it was wrestling or, or, or the love for the Dodgers before, my parents probably thought, well, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, my taste will change. I'll outgrow, but they never did. And um, I had a chance to go, like I say, they took me one time to Ebbets Field. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I just remember sitting uh, behind the, up in the section behind the dugout on the third base side. And I have this memory of, of Warren Spawn with that big hook nose and that high kick yeah. uh, warming up in, in the bullpen. And I, that's the only recollection I have of, of that day. But I, I say we, I went to one game in, in Ebbets Field. And then the other thing was uh, my wife, my, 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 we're now divorced, but my third wife gave me a, a present of a week for Dodger Fantasy Camp. Oh, in really? Yeah. Down so, Florida? Down in Florida, yeah. and so again, Duke, Duke Duke Snyder was my idol, and yeah. so now uh, I'm I'm in the batting cage, and there's Duke Snyder, you know, leaning against the thing, <laughs> you know, critiquing my, and it's like I I had to just step out and pinch myself yeah. that here's my childhood childhood idol standing here, and um, God, it was Carl Erskine was there, who was uh, Clem Labine, a lot of the uh, the old time Dodgers and uh, 
And what made their fantasy camp different from all the others was that you actually lived in in Dodger Town in Vero Beach. In the uh, they had like two to a room, and the the Phillies had one, and, and some of the other teams had them. But they they would house you in a hotel, and you would go to the 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 uh, practice ground. But the one in Vero Beach with the Dodgers, uh, you you had your meals and everything there, and it was uh, it was a, an an incredible. Uh, experience for me yeah and uh, just uh, amazing because i uh we would go down as, and cover spring training and god uh i'm you know sandy koufax was there but anyway i get off track here but i i just uh love every once in a while i run into somebody that could appreciate uh that history and uh yeah the and last, where like, you are last day up was awesome the last day uh the, the thing ended like on a wednesday and so we went to a to a local restaurant mm-hmm. uh I, my wife uh, and my kids were real young, uh, stayed in a hotel because you actually lived in, uh, uh, you know, you know, housed where the players were housed yeah, and yeah. of course you see your family. And so the last night we went to a restaurant from, for dinner. And as we're walking in the front door for dinner, the door opens and out stamps, uh, Sandy Koufax leaving. <laughs> and, and so it was like, wow. Uh, you know, and, Campanella was still alive. It just, yeah. it just, for somebody that was a Brooklyn Dodger fan and to be able to go there, it was like a, a dream come true for a kid. It really was. Yeah. And I also uh, got to work on the, uh, I did a, a highlight film uh, with the 61 Yankees. And uh, I'm, I actually have the poster in my office here. It was called <clears> Pinstripe Power. And I, we got to go around the country, uh, JJ, uh, interviewing all these guys that run that team <clears> that were still around. And, oh, God, it was uh, yeah. just an experience. But we'll share that over a beer sometime. I'm going to run into you sometime, yeah. and I'll tell you more of the stories. But uh, I want well, to get I, back I to your. Work, huh? I worked for I worked for Vince McMahon and <laughs> got to know and and met John Filippelli, who is now the president of the Yes Network. Yep. And became uh, came good friends with he and his wife Jenna, and um, so one time uh, he took me down to to Yankee, had me go, took me to Yankee Stadium. Uh, and back in the clubhouse and the, there's, um, you know, uh, I can't remember what the, the thing was, a plate at the end of the dugout and back, uh, you know, in this, what looked to be very small, uh, uh, locker rooms, uh, yeah. you, you know, you think, oh boy, Yankees, but of course the modern stadiums are all, you know, built different, but, uh, it just was a magical, magical time for me. And. And, uh, you know, meeting my childhood heroes. Yeah, you go in those houses, man. Yankee Stadium back then, Fenway, yeah. So it it really uh, is quite an experience. But I want to get back to... I went to Fenway, too, uh, just uh, Greg Oliver, who who was... uh, uh, Bret Hart introduced me to Greg Oliver, who was, uh, at that point, I think a third-base coach for the Red Sox. And so when I was in Boston, he had me come over take a cab in the morning over to uh, uh, over to Fenway and again I got the whole tour there yeah. and walked out on the field out to the to, to the green monster where you look at it and it looked like somebody had taken a ball peen hammer and just tap 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 yeah. tap there was all these dents all over yeah. and then you open the open the door and you look underneath and there's all of this scaffolding and everywhere you look, somebody has taken a sharpie and signed their name, and I found an open spot. So, 
my signature's under there somewhere. Uh, I can't imagine that they ever paint over any of them. And uh, just, again, you know, a, a dream come true for me. Yeah, just but, incredible but, but, Look at us, JJ. We're yeah. like two little kids talking these stories. Yeah. <laughs> it's the truth, man. I, I have fond memories. That's like a whole other part of my life. I don't know. We ever. I don't know why we never chatted about this when we worked together when we were at the WWF. Because uh, I would have had a lot of great stories to tell you, and I and I, someday we will. We we're going we're to share those. But uh, I know folks uh, listening want to hear uh, us talk about your career uh, along the way because you you mentioned so many different things that you you did. And, you know, and, and going through it, and I'm looking at it, like in your book, it's almost like you got on a train that, and I don't want to say you wanted to get off, but couldn't get off. It just kind of went in all these different directions. These opportunities came along, and one was better than the next, or was the good choice at the time. Uh, do you feel that way? Yeah, I always, went? I always liken it to, and this has been a story of my life. I've been very fortunate that, like, as one door seemed to close behind me and there was another door in front of me I would open it and there was the next opportunity I, I never had a uh, like a downtime or a void where I was sitting around wondering what's coming next it just it, it, it all fell in place for me and as I said I had a lot of help along the way and um, I think that the, the people that I interacted with um, embraced me because I was a little bit older. I wasn't a kid and they realized that, that the passion that I had was genuine and I always showed respect for other people. And, uh, and as a result of that was, was respected and people wanted to help me. And so mm -hmm. as I look back, uh, God, I met the who's who of, uh, uh, uh and I went to Japan and, uh, went over there with, uh, with uh, a week early before a Japan tour, and it was one of those deals where they had uh, a group of American players over there that were actually in Yokohama, and I went over a week early with Akio Sato, who uh, handled the um, American talent for Giant Baba, and uh, met Sadaharu Oh, and uh, and the like. The 500 home run club was a big deal because the number wasn't wasn't so many back in those days and there was a counterpart 500 home run uh players from japan and they were they were all there and it just was uh really meant a lot to me to to be able to meet the great stars from from japanese baseball yeah well that that's just a, another bonus along the way but um where did this love really start for wrestling now you mentioned that um as we Back in that time, there wasn't the opportunity where you could really follow baseball. And then, of course, your favorite team decides to move, you know, more than a few thousand miles away. Is that what kind of filled the void, or was it something else that just grabbed your attention about it? No, you hit it on, hit the nail on the head. That that was a turning point for me. I mean, I always liked, I, I really liked baseball. Yeah. Uh, you know, everybody dreams of being a major leaguer, and, and I, I knew that I didn't have the skill level to ever do that but that didn't mean i didn't love playing playing the game yeah uh and so uh it and and living in the, being from new jersey and then especially when uh, i was working for vince mcmahon uh and met john Filippelli and you know just you know but it's funny like baseball wrestling a lot of wrestling fans are huge baseball fans and when you 
uh, interact with baseball players, <laughs> most of them are huge wrestling fans. So it it just um, it, I, it had a natural connection, right? You know, right from the very beginning, and yeah. uh, that's amazing. Because you know, you mentioned that, and I'll just tell you a quick story. <laughs> I keep coming back to baseball, but one of my first highlight films I ever did, I did for the Twins, the Minnesota Twins, and I remember that I I went there and I was I was so you know I was just this green kid. I didn't know what the hell I was doing with these shoots or anything, and I had all this responsibility. And I walked into the locker room, and Kent Herbeck, if you remember, yes, uh, was with that team. There were these young kids, and Gary Gaetti, and it was just this really young group of kids. And they were wrestling in the, I mean, full blown, all out body slamming <laughs> in the locker room. <laughs> so it, it's, it's been woven into my life as well. But I had, uh, a, I had the pleasure of meeting Kirby Puckett too, was yeah, a, oh yeah, who was, was a that team. huge yeah. wrestling yeah. fan. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, when I met him, it's like, here I am in awe of, you know, meeting Kirby Puckett and he thought it was a big deal to meet me and, yeah. And yeah. and I I wanted to talk about baseball. He wanted to talk about wrestling. So that happens. That happens a lot. Yeah, it's like rock stars. They do the same thing. Rock stars want to be wrestlers, and you know, the yep, same thing. Absolutely. Movie stars want to be wrestlers. <laughs> so they, the, the the world's collide. But it's all about entertainment. That's that's what it all comes down to. True. But uh, I know that you're you're uh, one of the first uh, stars that you really followed in wrestling was was Johnny Valentine, and you end up doing a fan club for him, right? Yeah, and, I, and... I, I was 16 years old and had a fan club uh, for Johnny Valentine, and I've got a, a a picture on the wall of the basement of the armory in Trenton, New Jersey, and John was walking out and, and had a picture taken with him. And I also befriended uh, uh, the original Zebra Kid, George Bolas, and he uh, traveled the world, spent a lot of time in Europe, and, and he uh, corresponded with me from all over the world. They used to have a thing. I don't know if they still have them, but it was like a 11, 11 by 14, real thin paper. And it was blue and you could write a letter on it. And then they had all the folds and you would fold it up. And it, when you ended folding it up, it would be, uh, a, an address and you would mail it. Mm-hmm. And then somebody could take it. And there were two places that you would slice and the whole thing would open up. And it was a very inexpensive way, especially with uh, international mail. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. How that uh, it's when we think back about how simple that way, you know, snail mail as they call it. not even those. That's not even uh, you know now to 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 put. And, and imagine people putting stamps on things that you know maybe with a thank you note today, but that's about it. But um, you know, uh, you got I guess obsessed. And, 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 and we're going and, and Phil, you're near, near Philadelphia in a sense. So you could, you had a lot of access to the city. Is that, that's where you uh, went most of the time, right? For, to watch. Yeah, I was, I was born and raised in Trenton, which was about 35 miles from Philly and about 65 miles from New York. So Mm -hmm. television wise, uh, we used to get the TV stations out of Philadelphia in Trenton and the TV stations out of New York. So we were, we used to be able to watch. Uh, the old Dodgers on Channel Nine with, like I say, Happy Felton's Not Whole Gang, and and watch. So that really was helpful in becoming a huge uh, Brooklyn Dodger fan. And then, like I say, in 1958, they up and moved to the West Coast, 
as did uh, the the Giants. The only ones that stayed here were the Yankees. And it was, uh, you know, like I, I was heartbroken because, again, before cable television, before the Internet, and, you know, you'd run out and get the morning newspaper and there'd be a, just a small line score from about the third inning when they went to, went to press. And so it was hard to keep up, uh, you know, the, the interest. And, and that's when I kind of discovered you know, professional wrestling and all, and all of my attention and most, most of the focus of my attention went to, to wrestling, which worked out quite well for me as well. Yeah, but you decided to go to college, and you know, not to say that people didn't go to college back then, but uh, it, there was as many people who went into uh, trade jobs or, you know, didn't. What made you decide to go to college? And, and you finished. You got a, a degree, and... Was it yep. always the backup plan, or did you think, I want to get into the wrestling business? Why college? Well, I befriended the original Zebra Kid, George Bolas. And um, we, they used to do TV in Philadelphia uh, at the NBC studios in Walnut Street on, on a Wednesday night, and they would tape it, and it would air on Saturday. Mm-hmm. So I was living in, in – I was going to college in Reading, and – the guy who would set the ring up lived in Reading, and so I would drive down with him to Philly every week, and they, they stored the ring in the basement of the NBC studio. He would get it out, and I would help, help him, and the ring would be – it was a, a scaled-down ring, and in the basement they had like a – which was actually a small movie theater – because there was a screen that could drop down from up above, and the seating was kind of like a theater where the seats kind of went up as it, it went further to the back, but it didn't seat all that many people. And the stage uh, is where the ring was set up, and it would it would be set up right to the front of the the uh, it just fit on the stage, and the front of it was almost up to the edge of the thing, so the guys had to know not to take a bump out through the ropes on that front side because there'd be about another five foot drop to 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 the floor. So um, it was a scaled and, down and ring. It was a smaller ring, a little bit smaller ring for the for TV. And and the announcer would sit. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. He he was handicapped and walks with a limp, and he would sit there at a little uh, desk uh, uh, right to the side of the ring. And uh, the other guy that would set the, uh, the the ring up and I would help him, we each wore a white T-shirt. And for the matches, uh, he would take the, the jackets from one corner, I would take the jackets from the other. So at that time, I was in college, and it was like my my – 10 seconds of fame every week. Say, oh, there you look, you're on TV. <laughs> it, was, it just was, uh, God, it was some, some great, great memories. But I, like I say, I befriended a lot of these guys because uh, that most of them that were traveling the, the East Coast circuit lived right across the river in Paulsboro, New Jersey, because it was accessible to go north and south if they were, because they would go up as far as, uh, uh, as the tip of New England up in Maine, and then they would go down to Washington, D.C., and they would go as far west as Pittsburgh. So in terms of major highways and whatever, uh, so it was it was a great place to, to live and to really get to know uh, all the stars of, of that era. And they all came through there? Uh, yeah. At one point or another? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Because it was the... It, it, what was good was it was... A lot of the other territories would have a major town, 
but that would be it. It would be a major town, and then smaller towns uh, would fill out the circuit. But the East Coast had, um, you know, Boston was a major town. Providence was a major town. Like uh, New ha- Hartford, New Haven, they were major towns. Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, down to Washington. So uh, the, 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 the top stars in the business eventually hope to be able to get on get in get their foot in there and come in because the the, the earning potential was uh, so great because the of all the major arenas in that in that area so so did they um how did they divide the territories up then i mean we knew that uh, vince senior was there and and basically ran new york but how far did those territories run was philadelphia different something else that was carved out how did they do that and then of course we know that they would exchange talent so how did how did it work there were probably 25 um small promotions all across the country now by small Mm -hmm. promotions i mean like florida would have been a a territory in and of itself that would that would produce their tv they would air in tampa and they had a circuit that you know, it would be like Tuesday was Tampa, Wednesday was Miami, Thursday was Jacksonville or whatever, or Tallahassee, yeah, and then Tallahassee. So, and these were weekly towns, uh, and so and the televisions, it was produced in Florida and only seen in Florida, and it was only later on. I remember I was in Amarillo, and and wrestling fans always because wrestlers would come in and want to stay as long as they could, so. I was fortunate that some guys, you know, five, six months was their maximum. And it took me a little bit longer to get over, but then I could stay longer. Mm-hmm. And when you're having to move and change it, change and get a new apartment and schools and everything, the moves were, were, and then you're having to reestablish yourself before you stop making, you know, top money in, in the territory. So it was, it was a kind of a strange time in the business. And then yeah. when, um, Georgia Championship Wrestling came on out of Atlanta and cable went on. I remember being right. in Amarillo at the time and the fans in Amarillo would say to to the, to the Kozaks in Amarillo, when are we going to see Wildfire Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer? Because that's who they were seeing every week out of that Georgia TV, but they they weren't in, in the town. They didn't understand. Right. They territories. They, they didn't, no, they didn't understand yeah. that you produced the TV for your territory, and that was virtually all the exposure and all the interest was built around. Now they've got something else, and they're seeing. Well, they never really rationalized. Well, let's see, this guy's feuding with this guy. I mean, because that's what you had to do. You had to build up feuds and yeah. and 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 do finishes uh, in the arena to build towards the following week, and then do something on TV to complement. And it was it. it, it that's just how the business worked. Now, all of a sudden, they're seeing a TV, another TV, other than the one that's produced locally out of out of Georgia. And I remember them used to say, to the when are we going to see Wildfire Tommy Rich yeah. and Buzz Sawyer? They, and not understanding that, well, I don't have anything to do with them. They're doing their own TV over there, and they were running around Georgia, and they did go up as far as, I think, Columbus, Ohio back in those days. But that was the beginning of the change. Right. For television and that's where vince mcmahon I, I tip my hat to vince because he he realized the direction of and the uh, the other local promoters 
tried so desperately to to hang on to what they had without realizing that they were becoming obsolete in time yeah. and that, that it was only getting worse and not better. Right. And so Vince understood that he had to get his TV on in these other major markets so that he could become, and he really was the first, not only national promoter, but global promoter too, because he was going to uh, England and going going to uh, th- throughout Europe. Yeah, but before that, and the thing is, uh, like you mentioned, I mean, it, it flipped everything. When cable came in and they were able to have these broader markets and cover more of the country, because prior to that, with the territories, you had your TV, but the TV was just for that viewing area. And you could have a guy have a run there, and let's say that might run eight months, and then he could go somewhere completely different. Nobody would seen him. Nobody and would now know. now these were crossing over, and you would see these guys somewhere else, and then suddenly they show up here, but you've already, you know, it didn't, things had to change. And it wasn't as though, you know, uh, you give full credit to Vince, and he, he deserves it, but it wasn't as though these other promoters didn't try and do the same thing. They just didn't pull it off because they wanted to do yeah. the same thing and, and, across the and, country. They they didn't want to take the risks because it involved financial. When you're traveling across the country and, and running live shows, then the transportation yeah. becomes. I mean, it oh, just changes. Yeah. It's not the simple thing that it, that that it once was when you had a small geographic area and you were doing weekly towns and you know you could do spot shows in high schools and all, but yeah. it it just it radically radically you know. Change the change the industry. Yeah. Well, and you know the stories too that you know Vince's idea with the syndication was he would go to these uh, local stations and back then uh, we had them on videotape and they would uh, it would be a show and they would send the thing out to air on that Saturday morning whatever and he was paying that he was paying yeah, the stations it, to play it. he was buying airtime it wasn't though they were yes you know and that and I don't that, know how many times he almost went broke or I think he did. Well, that radically changed the business because yeah. up to that point it was a barter system. Yep. In other words, they would produce like Tampa would produce a TV and it would go to Miami. And so the TV station in Miami would get a complete one hour program that, yeah. that they, it was handed to it would come, it would come by bus on a two inch scotch tape and they would separately, sometimes separately get, there would be like six, two minute, commercial spots in an, in an yeah. hour of television that, that, that the station got to insert their well, spots the, pro, the promotion kept two yeah so that they would do the two event centers like if it was in miami you know where they would yeah. you know they would do the hard sell for what was in the and if they didn't have a show in that market they would fill it with something generic and then the other four spots the tv station would sell that and that was uh, like so they're getting a, an hour of programming yeah. Uh, and of the of the being, six hours being paid to do that, uh, being paid to do it because yep. of the six uh, of the six commercial spots, yeah. uh, they they had four to sell advertising. And the nice part of it was that that the, these shows were getting great ratings. Yeah. So well, it was, you know, uh, it was, and, and you remember you know, Nelson? You remember you remember Nelson Swegler? Yes. Very and well. Nelson, we had I had him on the on the show, and and. Uh, we got to talking about the same uh, concept of how Vince was doing this. And he uh, told the story of they're all in a meeting and, and uh, Nelson uh, brings up the fact, he says, you know, there's these other spots that we can use to put in there of our own 
advertisers. And he said, Vince said, Vince said to him, we're not in the advertising business. We're in the wrestling business. And yeah. how much has that changed? Over the- well, I had to and, laugh. And he was, he was true because yeah. it would not have had the same impact if they had filled the all six two-minute commercials with live event centers. Yeah. If it was four of the ones that the station could sell the to local and it was getting good ratings, the, the wrestling show. So that was revenue for them that here's here's a finished product, six television commercial spots. They're giving you the the what to produce uh, in the show for two of them. And the other four, you can sell the advertising and it's getting good ratings. So it was a yeah. win-win for the TV stations because oh, yeah. they got an hour show that they didn't have to do anything yeah. and could could sell the advertising at good rates because it got good ratings. And then the promotion had those two spots to hard sell whatever the live events were in that market. It was yeah. a great system and a great time in the business. Yeah, it sure was. As uh, They would end up making a lot of money as uh, advertising. I mean, Slim Jim and the rest, but that's a, that's another story. Um, and, and before we get to your days at the WWF, WWE, uh, I wanted to bring up, because one of your first jobs was a ref in the ring. And I, I was fascinated when you talk about it, because uh, a lot of people don't understand how it worked back in the day. And I remember the when we used to play the Garden in both Boston and New York, and when we went to Philadelphia... They were really strict about not only the unions that uh, would, you know, about the setting up rings and that kind of thing, but the athletic commission was. The athletic commission, yeah, it was very strong. This. So yeah, explain that, how that worked because uh, it was, uh, you know, it was just a payday for these guys uh, being able to help wrestling keep kayfabe or whatever. Uh, but for them, it was, it, was, it was big money. So explain how that worked back then with the athletic commission. Well, you, yeah, you had commissions, and like even in Pennsylvania, you had an east the, a commission uh, that took care of half of the state to the east, and then a separate commission for the western part of the state out to Pittsburgh. And uh, it, like you say, the referees, like in Philadelphia, with the referees, it was a a thing where the commission referees often were not wrestling fans and it was a it was a political thing in other mm-hmm. words as a as a as a political favor they would say to somebody oh uh, i'll have you put on as a referee for wrestling and you come down there and you make 100 bucks well back in the in the yeah. se- uh, 70s 100 bucks would be That's a lot of money would be a lot of money yeah, yeah. it would be yeah. somewhere between 500 thousand dollars today so yeah. To have somebody say, well, you come down there and you don't have to do anything. You just got to be able to count three. The problem was that once on a TV where they were, were having to, wanted to do something on TV that was controversial or to – because it, it's, a, it's, an ath- it's an athletic soap opera. Yeah, like a hot finish. Goes, goes on weekly and it's – yeah, so they had some hot finishes. Well, these yeah. guys that – getting paid a hundred bucks just to be there and count one, two, three, when it was uh, all of a sudden somebody said, well, this is what we want to do tonight. And all of a sudden yeah. their eyes would get yeah, like, yeah. so like, how are we going to get like, out of here? Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> well, I was a wrestling fan. So for yeah. me, uh, I didn't, you know, the, the heat, I didn't care. And because I had befriended the wrestlers, they, they liked me because they knew that, well, if there's a hot finish, 
he's going to do it and he's not going to be scared to death and he's not going to he's not going to turn or turn around and look when he shouldn't and and kill the impact of the finish and in return they embraced me and and it was always like a with a hot finish mm-hmm. they would tell me you know we you know ahead of time that it, that it's going to be and especially you know a town like Philadelphia you got a lot of hispanic fans and you know they're passionate and uh, sometimes the you worried about them storming the ring and then you also worried about getting from the ring back to the back of the arena where the dressing yeah. room was and yeah. the guys used to say to me you know they knew it was hot and well, okay and they would say when we we tell you to go go when you see the policeman coming up the aisle when they're yeah. about halfway up the aisle you go and then start and and no matter how crazy it gets or how much yelling or stuff trash being thrown do not stop <laughs> do not look behind you we will be behind you yeah. and if anything we'll be pushing you and they're coming to meet you from the other end and all of those controversial finishes all yeah. of those hot finishes i think i got speared in the back with a chair one time that left a welt in my back but other than that um they took care of you they took care of me yeah. they took but care of me because they it. realized that i that 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 I was important to the business and the next show where the other referees that were just commissioned referees and were there for the payday didn't want to do it. Didn't want to be involved in anything hot. Well, they weren't going to help sell it either, but you know, you mentioned police. They were like, it's some of those like riot squads, right? They weren't just cops hanging out. I mean, they would come out with the shields and, (laughs) but the other thing you got to remember too, a lot of these, a lot of these, uh, shows, the cops were local people. Yeah. They, 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 yes, where they were there to protect you, but many of them were kind of fans too. And they're watching you and you're doing something to basically, you've incited those people deliberately. Yeah. That's what you're there to do. And now all of a sudden you're making my job difficult because I got to protect you. And so it was always a balancing act. Yeah. And I always, you know, made it a point, uh, you know, when I safely got to the back, I'd stop and, you know, give each of the policemen a hug and thank them for, for taking care of me. In other words, it wasn't like I ever, never took them for granted. And I yeah. genuinely appreciated that, uh, that they took care of me. Yeah. And, you know, on the other side of this with the athletic commission and, and JJ, you know it well that, um, you know, they set this up. It was, it was the same, uh, Way they the same procedure they did for boxing matches. So they would come. They'd have to have a, there would be a doctor that would have to see all the guys. And it was and I don't know what the cost was. I don't know what they. But it that went on for years, right? Yes. Yep. For sure. I mean, I think that that was part of the reason that finally Vince said, "Forget it. I'm I'm not. You know, to to keep this up is ridiculous." Yeah. But, they uh, they worked they worked to abolish the commissions because the commissions. They, they were having to pay a, a, a tax or a fee to the commissions. Yeah, right. So the promotion looked at that as uh, an expense that did nothing to enhance the show. It was a political thing. And if yeah. they could somehow eliminate that, that was more revenue to be split other ways. Yeah. And it was a pain in the ass for all the yeah, boys. And, was. Oh God, yeah. I remember they used to have to line them up. And it was like, what what, what a farce. But, but anyway, I just always was fascinated by that because uh, – you know, they ran it. It was just like it was, uh, you know, main event boxing, you know, and uh, it was like, come on, this is we're just, we're just trying to entertain people here. Uh, but that was a, par- a big part of your, your uh, way you got started, though, is uh, you were a great referee. You knew not to cross in front of that that hard camera. So that well, what, uh, was what happened? What 
like I say, I was in, I went to college. I went to Albright College in Reading, yeah. Pennsylvania. And the and the guy who set the ring up, took it out of storage in the basement of the NBC thing, was from Reading, and yeah. so I knew him. So every Wednesday, I would then ride with him down down early in the day to uh, uh, to Philly. He would get the ring out and set the ring up on the stage. And then, like I say, each of us would uh, put on a plain T-shirt and he would take the jacket from one corner. I would take it from the other. And then what happened was we went down there because we would leave early in the day to go down there because of, the, of having enough time to get the ring out of storage and set it up and so forth. And they, they had a weather front come through that we got down there kind of ahead of it and were actually in the studio ahead of the, uh, of the brunt of this storm hitting. Well, the storm hit really bad, and uh, there was enough wrestlers that showed up to be able to put a one-hour show together, but no, none of the commission referees showed up. And it was like, oh, man, we don't have any referee. What are we going to do? And, of course, they're, they're not, everybody's eyes turned to me, and they said, well, okay, here, give me this. So they gave me a striped shirt, and I ended up, uh, refereeing the entire hour because I was the only one there and I instinctively from being a fan like I say they didn't have to give me any instructions I, ju I just in instinctively knew what to do knew not to they, and they made a point with them whatever you do just don't not walk in front of that you walk three sides of the ring do not walk between the hard camera there and the back in the ring there you go. we don't want to see your butt <laughs> and, yeah. and that's the only instructions that they really gave me and of course the boys all took care of me as far as whatever the finishes were. And, and I, uh, did the whole hour. They were, they thought, God, you're, wow. Why have you been refereeing? Full? So then they lobbied to get me added to the commission. And that's, that's how it, it all grew, all grew from yeah. that. Yeah. You know, in, in your book, uh, wrestlers are like seagulls from McMahon to McMahon. Um, and then, you know, it all makes sense. I mean, that's, I, uh, that's a, a quote, I guess, from uh, Vince senior, but, um, he was around a lot in then. And I think that you, you meet, you met him during that period of time yes, and then it he, would eventually go get trained. So, uh, he would come, that... he would come to the big shows in, uh, once in a Philly. month in Philly, uh -huh. they would either be at the arena in 46 and market, or they would be at convention hall and the Vince would come in, Vince senior would would come in and i always remembered he dressed you know always uh, with a shirt and tie and jacket and usually wore a vest and i always remember that he had i don't know if they were half dollars or silver dollars that he would have like five or six of them that he it was like a nervous habit that he would he had a way of rolling them over uh back to front back to front back to front it was like a nervous thing and mm -hmm. and that and i remember he was uh, uh a heavy smoker but mm -hmm. I got to know him on a first name basis and you know, he re realized that I was there to help the, the business. And so when I, because it was a, com a commission assigned deal, I wasn't assigned to every show and yet I would go down to the show and be there, uh, in case somebody got hurt, something happened. And just because I was, I was a wrestling fan too. And invariably, uh, the payoffs were done. The guys would get their advances, the talent from either uh, Arnold Scolan or Angelo Savoldi. Mm -hmm. And even if, even when I wasn't, when we refereed, we used to get $100. Now, $100 back in those days was a lot of money. Yeah. And But I wouldn't be assigned to, to every show. Mm -hmm. But I, I would still be there. 
and invariably Scoland or Angelo would come over and shake my hand and palm me a $20 bill. And Vince wanted you to have this. He appreciates that you were here just in case we need. Yeah. Just showing up just in case we needed something. And that was, you know, 20 bucks was back in those days was probably a hundred dollars today. So we talk about this. uh, You you mentioned the doors opening. Uh, That was one, but is, I guess you had in your mind, you always wanted to be a wrestler and, I I think yes. I, I think you ended up in Florida and uh, started training with uh, Graham. With I oh, never really trained. Bump. So how did you I, end up in I, Florida? I, I mean, did you go no. there with the idea that I want to wrestle? How did how did you end up uh, taking the stripes off and and actually putting the tights on? What happened was I, um, in when I went to I went to high school in yeah. New Jersey and then. New Jersey at that time, they had no amateur high school wrestling. I never saw an amateur wrestling match in New Jersey for the, I graduated from, I went to high school between 60 mm-hmm. and 64. And when I graduated, I, I went to Albright College because they had a wrestling team and I went out for the wrestling team, never having even seen <laughs> an amateur wrestling match. So it was like, you know, your first tendency when you're wrestling is to want to turn and reach, <laughs> reach around and you learn within 30 seconds, you're helping me, you're helping your opponent do what he's trying to do to you, which is right. to turn you on your back. <laughs> so, you know, oh, that's a no-no. It's to stay on all fours yeah. and not get turned over. And uh, so I learned the fun and, and I went back to, I was befriended by the original Zebra Kid, George Bolas. And like a and I get asked this question today and I'm, I know I ask the question a lot of times, George, I want to be a wrestler. Can you give me any advice? And his advice to me was, he said, you know, wrestling will always be here. So before you worry about that, you first need to get your education. And because the wrestling business is, can be very brutal. You're, it's an athletic thing, and you're, there's a possibility that you could be hurt on any given night and never be able to continue mm-hmm. your wrestling career. So if you have that diploma in your back pocket, that's yeah. your insurance policy. So get your, get your, get yeah. your diploma, get that education, yeah. get that degree first. And while you're there, go out for the wrestling ter- team and learn the fundamentals of amateur wrestling. Even if you're not, you, you've never wrestled before, you're going to learn and you will be a better professional because you're now employing leverage and things that are, that are integral to amateur wrestling that if you incorporate that into your style as a professional, you'll be a more proficient a pre- a professional. And he was absolutely true about that. So George Bolas had a very, very profound effect on me and I I took his advice I went to a college that was uh, not that far uh, 100 miles from Trenton to go to Reading and they had a wrestling team and I went out and they didn't have a heavyweight because it was a small school and so I had to learn from from scratch Uh, amateur experience he he was right really helped me be a more polished professional people say well amateur wrestling professional are two separate things yeah they are but if you can incorporate yeah, like balance. leverage and yeah, things absolutely. that are logic, there's a there's balance. There's a lot of fans sitting there who who have an appreciation for the fact that you don't do things that if it was a real fight, there are certain things that you wouldn't do. And you learn from amateur experience 
what not to do because you're always trying to protect yourself. You're always keeping from being turned on your back and what have you. And it ends up making you a better professional. So George was very, very right about that. And uh, getting my degree was a smart thing to do. Um, and I just, I got good advice from good people. And then I made a lot of friends al uh, along the way. And so, you know, they won. I never was trained by anyone. And what happened was um, I uh, refereed uh, on television. And I, one time there was a bad storm and nobody showed up and I had to referee the whole hour. And Ray Fabiani was there and said, boy, you're really good. And we need to get you on the commission staff, which he did. So now I'm starting to referee for the, yeah. for the house shows. And then Willie Gilsenberg came and said to Ray, who's this good kid? He's really good. He said, he's a Jersey boy. He's, he's, he said, well, I got to talk to him and get him on the commission. Over. We need somebody like him. He's really good. He just knows instinctively where to go. So, you know, it just so much, so much fell in, fell in place for me. And then, um, going to Florida, I'm trying that... to think, well, before I went there, it was like, I was one day in the dressing room and it was, uh, Eddie Farhat, the Sheik, came in for a series of matches that yeah. challenged Bruno and, just sitting in the dressing room making casual conversation. Um, uh, you know, he said, yeah, you're really a good referee. You got good size and everything. And I said, well, um, he said, you could come work for me. I told him that my dream was that I really wanted to be a wrestler. And he said, well, you could come. I, I promote Detroit. You come work for me. And it was this, there was this <laughs> silent pause for a couple seconds as I'm trying to digest what he just said. And I, I finally said, did you mean, because my parents, uh, my father worked for General Motors, and they, they closed the plant down in Trenton, and he was moved to Detroit for the last 10 years before he retired. So they lived in Detroit, and he said, well, I promote in Detroit. You can come out and work for me. And I paused for a couple seconds. You mean, I, I, you know, I said, you mean come and referee for you? He said, no, you want to wrestle? We'll bring, get your tights, come out, and we'll put you in the ring and see what you can do. And that's how it started. I worked my first TV match was in Dayton, Ohio. It was a tag match against the Hell's Angels. And then the next, and then Saturday, <clears throat> excuse me, Saturday I was supposed to be off. And then Sunday they did TVs up in Wald Lake, Michigan. So it was a guy named Johnny Carr from Springfield, Ohio, who was in Dayton that night. And so well, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm off tomorrow, uh, but I'm working TV Sunday. So, well, we have a car load that goes over to Pittsburgh because they need extras for their TV matches in Pittsburgh. And he said, you're welcome to get in the car and come with us. I can almost guarantee you're going to work. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. So I went to Pittsburgh, Channel 11 on top of the, and of course I knew Bruno, though Bruno oftentimes wasn't a TV. It was uh, uh, Rudy Miller and, uh, and Ace Freeman that took care of business. So I went over there and... Uh, that's how I got my my foot in the door over there, and then when I saw Bruno, because yeah, you've done a you ton know, of he, matches with him, before, he really took, right? As, yeah, as a rep. Yeah, he said, "Oh my god!" You know, and then he wanted to do everything. That, when I first went over there, I said, "Well, I, you know, I, I I'm I know Bruno, and of course, you know, Ace Freeman is. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> we've heard that story before." And I didn't, you know, I didn't, and I wrote Bruno a letter, and he had been in Italy, and so. Um, I never, I, I didn't know he was in Italy and I didn't get a response or hear back from him. 
And then they had a big show at the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh. So I went down to the show and um, I went to the to the back thing and I asked to, to see Ace Freeman. And Ace came out and I said, I, I, I wrote Bruno a letter, didn't hear from him, and I, but I, I hear he's here tonight and I, I'd like to be able to say hello to him. Yeah. All right, kid, just right. stay here. So <laughs> I don't know. Okay. All of a sudden the door opens about 30 seconds later and he's waving me. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Hurry up, hurry up. And I go inside and Bruno embraced me like yeah. I was his long lost brother that he hadn't seen for 10 years. And, and he then looked and Ace Freeman has like heard my story, but yeah, he's right. heard that story a hundred times from people. And, but now his <laughs> eyes are like, <laughs> like what, you know, bro. Was, Bruno yeah. does know you and he, yeah. he's excited to see you. And then he, he looks at, at, uh, uh, looks at, at, um, what's the name? And he said, I want him working this weekend. And he said, if you have to add a match, Jeez. put him on the match. And, and Ace Freeman is looking, it's like, uh, yeah. yes, sir. <laughs> and, and so I, they would run three times a week. They would run Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And so I worked there for, every weekend for a year and then i was going over to detroit and the sheik put me on all his big shows and then i'd work his tv too so i was getting in-ring experience and that's where i met jim grabmeyer who was from springfield ohio and he would work every summer for crockett in uh in the carolinas because they would in increase their roster because they ran like a lot of outdoor shows and what have you and so when he came home he uh you know i got to know him and he the summer started, he goes to Charlotte and he, two days later, I get a phone call and he said, I'm down here in Charlotte. And he said there, and, but I'd been a heel and he said, they're, they're hurting for talent. And I said, well, I got this guy, I had your picture. So they looked at it and they said, just based on my recommendation, he said, they'll book your yeah. site on the scene. And this is like on a yeah. Friday night. And he said, you could be here Monday. And start Monday, and I'm thinking, huh? <laughs> you know, and I've got a job, and it's like, and I had an old beat up Chevy, and I had never been below Richmond, Virginia, and Charlotte seemed like another planet. <laughs> and they're saying, if you're here Monday in Charlotte, and I said, and of course I, you know, all I said was, well, yeah, I'll be there. And I'm thinking, how am I going to get there? I've never been that far, and and so, uh, and then I, I remember, I was afraid to burn a bridge there where I was working. So I gave the, the people in, that I was working for like a, a, a letter. I put it under the, the station manager's door, the thing, and gave them like two weeks notice. And knowing that I wasn't going to be there in two, for two weeks, I was going to be in Charlotte on that Monday. And I drove through to Charlotte. You could stay at the YMCA in Charlotte for $15 a night. And it was right up the street from on East Moorhead Street from where uh, Jim Crockett Sr. had his office. And I went to Park Center on that Monday night and uh, uh, drawing a blank. But, uh, uh, Anderson, uh, the, the original Anderson, uh, and they booked me with him. And it was like the first match. And they, they said, you know, six, seven minutes. And go over, yes, sir, whatever. And I go out there, and it was a 20-minute time of the match, and all of a sudden I'm here in 17 minutes, 18 minutes, only two minutes left, and it, and the referee's saying, what are you doing? And so 
you know, where they went into a finish and uh, Gene Anderson then sent word when the match was over. He, the referee came over to me and he said, well, I know you're only supposed to go six, eight minutes, but he said Gene could sense that, that uh, you had talent and he wanted to keep you out there and just seeing more and more mm -hmm. what you were capable of doing. <laughs> and the time limit almost ran out. So he said, <laughs> you have passed the test with flying That's colors, great. my friend. And, and so I ended up, uh, I stayed there for over two years and I just, uh, I've had, I, like I say, I sound well, like a broken record, but I just, I've been so yeah, but the lucky. Thing is, JJ, that I don't think a lot of people realize is that you did have, uh, you know, a, a pretty impressive a wrestling career. Everybody remembers you as a, for what you did as yeah, a manager I paid, like, because I mean, yeah. you know, I know that you had a match at Madison Square Garden with Tito Santana for the Intercontinental Championship. Uh, Killer Kowalski is somebody. I, I, you could go on and on with all these guys that you uh, matched up with, but I don't think people really know. Yeah, when I first when I first got booked yeah. and I went to Dayton and I was off Saturday and they said, well, you know, you can work tomorrow. We sent a carload over to Pittsburgh. So yeah. I went over to Pittsburgh and I worked the TV match which was my actual first single match, and it was Killer Kowalski. <laughs> so it's a matter of pride for me to say, well, who would you have your first single? Well, I actually had a tag yeah, match, yeah. my first match. But who was your first single match Just with? Just Killer, Killer Kowalski. That's, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. awesome. And I, as I reflect back many a night where it was like, at that moment, it was the closest I thought I was coming to dying in the ring. And not that Walter was, yeah. he was not dangerous, but he was perpetual motion. He would start and he would knock you down and then he used that stomach claw and you'd take a bump and you'd be stunned from the bump and, and just about the time you were ready to take a, get some fresh oxygen in your lungs, yeah. wham, he clamped that claw. And it's, as I think back, you know, God, I thought, am I, yeah. am I going to survive this? And, you know, he spoke very highly of me because – you know, but a lot of times those old timers, when they're wrestling somebody for an enhancement match and have no idea, you know, they're going to be cautious. And, and, and so you have to, you know, earn their trust. And, um, it just, it like, and I stayed there two years doing that. And then the Sheik, uh, when he would run Kobo Hall or something, I would call the Sheik and he'd say, yeah, I'll put you on the card, come over and you can work the TVs too. So, I was working back and forth between Pittsburgh and, and doing the, the big shows and TV for the Sheik. And then that's when I met Jim Grabmeyer. And I was there for over mm. over a year. Grabmeyer leaves to go to Charlotte. And all of a sudden, I get the phone call. And he said, well, I'm here in Charlotte. And they're, they're hurting for talent. I had your picture and showed it to him. And they said, well, if, if, if you speak at the same, have him come on down. He starts Monday. <laughs> and I did. I packed everything. And I thought, well... You know, you never know if another chance like this would come along. And, I, and it was so unexpected. So I packed everything I had. Like I say, never been south of Richmond, Virginia at that point. Drove all the way through to Charlotte, stayed at the, at, uh, uh, at the YMCA. And, and went, I think I went to the office that day. And you parked behind the – it was in a residential street in Crockett's office. You, you went in the driveway, and they had like an open parking area in the back. And then – he had a stair, stair, a long stairwell from the back of the of the building that went up three flights of stairs to where his office was on the on the third floor of the thing, and um, it just, you know, uh, they, they took a liking to me again. You know, Sandy Scott was there, um, 
and they, you know, they, they, they recognized right away that I was, I wasn't a kid. I was a little bit older. I was like months from my mm-hmm. 28th birthday. And now I'm starting as a full-time wrestler, like living, finally living my dream. And, uh, I just never well, looked back and, from there. And, uh, all that experience, uh, you know, cause as I said, a lot, most people remember your, your time in front of the camera and, uh, being a wordsmith and, and, you know, just being great, uh, cutting promos and then also, uh, what you did at ringside. But all that training, I mean, you could take a bump with the best of them, and I always talk about that people don't really uh, appreciate uh, what you guys could do in the ring. You know, someone like Bobby Heenan, he could take incredible bumps. Um, and at what point Absolutely. did uh, the manager, uh, you know, you, you say these doors open, when did that become something serious? And you said, you know what, maybe this is, this is a good time to, uh, you know, to take this opportunity because it, I would imagine it'd have to be something big that would take you out of the ring. Yeah, I finally went, I finally had a chance to go to Florida, which was where I, I wanted to go and work for Eddie Graham. I I heard, you know, that he was this genius about the psychology of wrestling. And, uh, and I, it's like, I wanted to be under the Eddie Graham learning tree. So I finally was able to get booked. And when I went down there, um, the Mongolian stomper was there. And I, uh, he left to left Florida to go change territories to go to Tennessee where he had a top spot and with Bearcat mm-hmm. Wright as his manager. And he wasn't gone, God, a week, 10 days. And all of a sudden I get a phone call and he's, he's it's Archie mm-hmm. Goldie. And he said, uh, this thing was... <laughs> was a disaster. He said, I should have known Bearcat, right? It just, it, there was no way it was going to work out, but it was worth the try. And he said, I, it's so bad that I can't, I try. I had to do my own promos and it just killed my gimmick. So he said, I can't stay in Tennessee. And he said, I've been on the phone. I've got a main event spot in, uh, mm-hmm. in Dallas for Fritz mm-hmm. von Eric, where red Bastien is booker. And he said, but I don't have a manager. Have you ever thought about managing? I said, uh, no, sure hadn't. And he said, well, we've got a top spot. I said, well, I'd have to get some. Back then, they had leisure suits were uh, popular. And I said, I'd have to spend a few bucks to get a couple things so I could. And uh, so I went went to Dallas, and yeah. that was the beginning. Uh, Never turned back. Yeah, and, uh, boy, I've kept you an hour already, and there's still so much ground to cover here. But, um, you know, kind of fast-forwarding where you would – uh, really start to be recognized as uh, one of the premier wrestling managers out there. And, and uh, it's not something that's anywhere near appreciated today, but it was it was a big part of, of uh, selling storylines back then. And, uh, you know, when when uh, you hooked up with Dusty uh, later on, I mean, I think it was in 84 in Charlotte, and you started uh, booking as well. Was this, uh, you know, kind of all coming together for you at the time? Well, I wanted to go to Florida to be under the Eddie Graham learning tree. And when I went to Florida, I had never met Dusty. And he came, he'd been up, I don't know where he'd been, but he came back to Florida. And, and he would move in and out. And I, I learned later that, that too much of Dusty was not a good thing. So... Eddie Graham knew how to massage Dusty that that if before he would 
would be there too long, that the, that the glow would be off of it. Eddie would work with Vince McMahon Sr. And, and say, I need to move Dusty out of here for a couple of months. And then Vince would say, great, I can bring him up here. And he pops the garden and, uh, and makes the major towns. And it would always, Eddie would always approach Dusty with, Dusty, uh, my, my good friend, uh, Vince needs help. And you're the only one that could help him. So it's like he was, he knew how to massage Dusty so that he was, he was fulfilling what was best for Eddie in the Florida career, but doing it in a way that he was selling it to Dusty that, uh, you know, that he was doing this for Dusty because they, they needed him so bad. And that, that almost sounds like, I don't know, but, but, and, but Dusty was a good, good talent. Sometimes the great talents uh, can be their own worst enemies. They can yeah. stay too long or just wear out their welcome. And Eddie understood that Dusty was best when he would have a run, move yeah. him out for a while, and then bring him back, and he would come back in and explode it again. And so that they were able to, to trade Dusty off between Florida and, uh, and New York. And, but going to Florida, Dusty came in and uh, – I, I really got to, to be around Dusty and developed a, a friendship with him that, um, you know, and I still think about, you know, with sadness yeah. with his passing, but, um, you know, w with uh, Michelle and Dusty became not only, he became a close personal friend. Yeah, too. and there's so many really people did. on the way that, that, that talk about how he helped them along in their careers. Um, yes. And, uh, yep. you know, there's... When people get in those positions and they're just incredibly talented people, and then you become you have that uh, booking power, uh, sometimes it can <laughs> change. It can kind of cloud your judgment a little bit, and I think that there were some issues with that later on. But uh, it 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 got you in, in along this road. I mean, it, now the, now we're talking. You're getting to the, the the big time in a sense, and I think it wasn't even a, a, a with the NWA a year later that you're you're. Uh, part of the four horsemen. So at this point in your, your life, what, what are you realizing this or is it just uh, like I mentioned that the, the train is rolling? Yeah, I was in Florida and I had a, I had, I had worked early in my career at the, in the Canadian Maritimes and actually got my break up there as a, as a, as a heel. And I was the top heel for the summer and it was the biggest year they ever had. And I came in, and that again, they had had Killer Carl Krupp, they'd had uh, Archie Goldie before that, and they were they were support. And I was uh, got to know Leo Burke because he would come for the off season down to in the summer for the Carolinas. Because in the summer they would run up in the in the Maritimes they would run hockey arenas, and the ice would be down in the summer, and that's when they would run. But in the winter when they, you know, played hockey. Um, that they would shut down. So they would then go to, uh, he would then go and to, uh, yeah. to the Carolinas. So, um, you know, they saw me and they said, well, actually Weaver, they, they kind of like, they were friends with Weaver because they wanted to keep in Weaver was, uh, it was Weaver and George Becker that were the top team. And then Johnny was like the booker. So, you know, Leo Burke and the Beast and those guys, you know, wanted to keep that relationship good with Weaver. So they would bring Weaver up to 
the Maritimes like for a week at a time and give him star status. They would bring him in like he was a, this a great star. And he wasn't. John was a very talented guy. It wasn't like they were giving him something that he wasn't worthy of. And so what? one week he was supposed to go up there for a week and one of the guys in Charlotte got hurt. I don't remember who, who it was. And one of the top guys. And so obviously Crockett said to Weaver, well, you know, I need to keep you here because you weren't booked, but the top guy got hurt, and so I need for you to take that. Now he that that he's supposed to go up to the Maritimes, so they he calls they call me and, and they say, well, we want you to go up there for a week. Uh, Weaver can't go, and we know that you'll go up there, and we just know that they're you're not going to disappoint them. And I said, well, how am I going to get there? And they said, well, you come to the office and talk to Mr. Crockett. So I come to the office and I sat there crossing that big table. And, you know, Crockett knew the whole story. He said, well, I understand, you know, that uh, John was supposed to go up there, but so-and-so got hurt. We need to keep John here. And so John wants to make sure that whoever goes up there uh, doesn't mm-hmm. disappoint them. And so he's handpicked you to go. And I said, oh, wow. And like you, know, I remember it was like six hundred and eighty dollars for a ticket, round trip ticket to go up to uh, to That's Halifax. Fortune then. And I said, well, I, yeah, well, and I said, well, man, I'm flattered, but I said, uh, I don't have the money to buy the ticket. We said, well, you need to get you get your ticket. You'll go up there. They'll reimburse you for that ticket. So Jim Crockett goes in his pocket, gets out a big wad of bills, and he counts out. I think it was $660, $680, whatever it has, and $100 tax, tax. And he said, you go buy your ticket. When you get up there, he said, they'll reimburse you. And when you come back, you just come in and repay me. I said, well, geez, thank you very much. Because now that that, that meant yeah. that I, it was my way to get up there. And I and I went up there and, uh, and exceeded their expectations because they'd never heard of me. And then they said, oh, wow, we want you to come back uh, next season. First, they wanted me to come back as they always had a single attraction. And then Freddie Sweetan was from there and they would have a partner for Freddie that would be the tag champions underneath whoever the the featured uh, heel was. So they said, we want you to come in next year for the whole season as Freddie Sweetan's tag partner. Wow. You know, this is my first break in the business. And Stan Stasiak was supposed to be the top single for that. And about. It was less than two weeks. It might have been 10 days. Around two weeks before Vince McMahon Sr. calls Stan Stasiak to give him a starting spot in the New York Territory. Well, you know, they 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 set up there. We said, well, God, we can't tell Stan that he can't go because we're, we're counting on him being here. They understood the business to know that you couldn't hold a guy back when he's got the chance to go work for the, for the, for the big promotion up there. So then I, I think in the car that day, I said to, to, uh, Leo Burke, I said, you know, you've had, you've had Archie Goldie, you've had killer Carl Krupp, you've had all these big, big monster heels up there. I said, what if you change the formula one year? Cause I'm, I'm tall. I look bigger in, in the ring than what I actually am, but I'm a, I'm a braggadocious talking heel, a chicken shit heel, <laughs> totally different than everything that you've had. You've had the parade of monsters and he's kind of listening and, and 
so I, I rode with him the next day. And so I talked to Rudy and I threw out, you know, what we talked about. And all he said was, uh, uh-huh, mm-hmm. And then didn't say anything more. I didn't say anything more. Then the next day, I w- I'm with uh, him again. And he says, John, they said, Rudy called back. And he said, the more he thought about it, the more intrigued he was the idea about going with a chicken shit wrestling heel rather than trying to find another monster. So he said, you were coming in anyway as a tag team partner. And he said, now, um, you know, you're going to be the featured heel. He said, the only thing they're worried about is they, they wanted me to go start drinking a six pack every night and try to put on 10 or 20 pounds. Cause I was, I'm like, I'm over six feet tall and I, but I'm about, you know, 228 to, yeah. I wasn't 260. So, uh, and so that was my break for, for a top spot went up there and it ended up, I had been making my, I spent two years in Charlotte. My first year in Charlotte, I think I averaged $270 a week. Now they didn't run on Sundays and that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but you go back mm-hmm. into the seventies, that 260 was like 750. Yeah. At the time, it was big, much bigger money than anybody could work on any regular job. And I went up to the Canadian Maritimes. It was 23 weeks, and they had their biggest season ever up there. And I averaged over $1,000 a week wow. for 23 weeks. And it opened the door for me to go to Amarillo from there, where I was featured in, because they, they had seen me. And I was, I was already set to go there and told that I would uh, – I would get uh, two tours of Japan, and it just it, it was like um, a momentum a momentum thing. And I I had met uh, um, I met Dor- Dory Funk was the reigning champion. So Dory, you know, told me privately. He said, "Boy, he said you, you know, God, you would do so good in Amarillo." He said, "But I got to be careful because I get in trouble if if they think that I'm even talking to talent." And I wouldn't want you to up and leave abruptly, but when you're ready to make your move, I can guarantee you a top spot in uh, in Amarillo. And then they had a big show in Greensboro, and uh, Dory was defending the world title, and Terry Funk and Dory Sr. came in on the same card for a tag match under Dory Funk defending the title. So Dory says, my brother's coming in. And my father's coming in to Greensboro. I'd like for you to come down early and come to the hotel. And I'd like to, to introduce you and have them meet you. So I went down, got the phone call, went down to Greensboro early. I went by the hotel and met Terry for the first time, met Senior for the first time. And when I left there, I went to the, to the Maritimes for the summer. I got the phone call. That's when Senior had died of the heart attack. So it was the only time I ever saw him and met him. And they just uh, said, well, you're going up to the, you're going up there for the summer. And we're telling you right now, you'll have a top spot when you're done there. Come to Amarillo and we'll guarantee you that you'll have at least two trips to Japan for Giant Baba. So it just was a momentum thing. And uh, well, if anybody was ever wondering about your your, uh, career as a wrestler, I mean, uh, it it is, it's very rich. I mean, and you, and you were a a main line, you're a main eventer. And, uh, but, but like you said, right place, right time. And a lot of these opportunities and, and, uh, getting back to when we were you know, talking about the, the, the formation of, of the four horsemen, was it, at, well, 
We're going back before that. I went yeah. to Florida as a wrestler. And um, uh, Stomper left to go to Tennessee with uh, uh, with Bearcat Wright as his manager. It didn't work out. So he calls me in Florida. And I, and I was middle of the car. I had, you know, I was figured in there and, and finally happy to be there working for Eddie Graham. And he said, the thing didn't work out. I've got to leave here. I got to get out. And he said, I made a couple calls and he said, I have a main event spot uh-huh. in Dallas with, uh, Fritz and red Bassines, the booker. But he said, I, d- I need a manager. And he said, have you ever thought of managing? I said, no. And he said, well, I just, I've heard your interviews. <laughs> I've worked with you. And he said, your interviews are unique. They're different. And he said, I think as a manager that you'd be, he said, I, I, I'd love to have you as a manager to go into Dallas and we'd be going in with a main event spot. And I said, well, I need to call him. And he said, no. And so I had a starting date, went in, and that was the beginning. I mean, I went in on top with yeah. uh, with Stomper. In, into uh, And then what him. happens is Stomper, Stomper, yeah, and Stomper sometimes could be his own worst enemy. He, 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 would, he had trouble with uh, depression. And if some some little thing would trigger him, where he'd say, "Oh, they, oh, they don't really have any plans for me here." I mean, he would talk himself into a, what was a positive situation, and by the time he was done talking, okay. he'd have you depressed. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so. His safety net was going back to Calgary, where he was originally from. Got his break, and all he had to do was pick up the phone and get Stu on the phone, and Stu would have him booked the next day. So he, he, he could leave and he was never like, well, if I leave here, where am I going to go? He called yeah. Stu and he had a spot. So that's what happened. He, he wasn't happy. He leave, he leaves. So, so red tells me, he said, well, Stomper just up and, and they, they said, we can't get a hold of him. So I said, well, I'll go by the house. And he had rented a house. I go by the house. I look in the window, empty, no furniture, <laughs> nothing. Like so I call. I call Ren. I said, Ren, Ren, I I could be off here, but I think he's gone. I said, (laughs) he's gone. Oh, man. He said, and they already had the thing invested in me. And he said, well, first thing we want to make clear is we're going to figure out you're, you know, you're going to stay and you're figured in. And so the first thing that they brought, they brought in Lonnie Maine out of uh, San Francisco, Moondog Maine. And, so I had a whole trail of guys that I managed, and it was the beginning of my my man, my managerial career out of Dallas. It was a whole whole new thing for me. Yeah, see how this uh, the road goes. You just keep following it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And even as as you guys are out there, as the legend goes, you come out for a promo with these guys, and uh, Arn happens to say something that catches on, and and uh, now you got two rings. <laughs> Yeah, that, and, that, and that's how that how it happened. That uh, I was I was in, I I left and I went to I'd gone back to Florida. Left Florida. To, or actually, I I was hoping to uh, to someday because I again when I started full time I was almost mm-hmm. twenty eight years old. So I knew that that my my years you know going in the ring were going were were numbered. And so I knew that I had to, to learn the uh, television production and the whole other facets of the business and that I couldn't count on my career being able to make me a good living. And um, so 
I, that's what I did. I, I watched how television was produced, how a show was put together, and how everything was timed. So I became a, a, a student of, of the game. And Dusty came back to Florida, had a little bit of a run, and then um, I was going to go. I wanted to – I had an interest back in the Canadian Maritimes of – wanting to own, be a promoter, having an interest. So they wanted me to come back up there and offered me like 25 points of the promotion for no money, just me as a mm-hmm. talent coming up there. And in the meantime, Emil Dupre, who used to run um, without television, and he, he never wanted to make the risk of, of being an, obligated to the expense of, of, of having to run the television every week. He, meanwhile had taken over where the other promoter, where Rudy Kay had the TV, and he kind of got his feet wet. And so I wanted to go back up there, and he, he Emil didn't, didn't want to, uh, he didn't want to step aside. So the TV station gave the promoter up there, um, an, an, they weren't going to give him the, the spot on the major television, it was the first year for cable television in the Maritimes, so they they were going to give uh, the 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 other the promoter that I'd worked for years ago who'd been the announcer. They were going to give him a one hour spot on the on the infant cable network that was starting. So okay, and Eddie Graham had me do gave me the full run of the tape libraries, and I did like six uh, intro things that aired ahead of time, but. I learned a lesson that cable being in its infancy, it, it, the whole thing is I, how many eyeballs are seeing you. And they had a great spot. It was, it was a beginning, which if it had been two years later, it would have been entirely different. But it was cable television starting and had a very limited audience. There weren't enough eyeballs seeing it. And I was there a couple of weeks. And the guy had given me a guarantee. And, I, and he, you know he uh, owned an ad agency. And we could see that it was going nowhere because the, they didn't have the eyeballs right. for the TV. And I, I, I went to him and I said, look, I can't in good conscience take your guarantee money every week if, if it, cable television yeah. is just starting. If we had done this two years down the line, it would be a totally different story. And I said, I can't stay here and take your money. And I said, you, you, I don't want to see you lose your house and everything that you own to try and make this when I can see the writing on the wall that we were two years too soon. And he thanked me. He said, there's other people that would have come up here and expect me to keep paying them. And, and what you say would have, uh, yeah. would have been true. So I, I, now I'm calling dusty. I've only been, I've not even been gone three months. I called dusty and I said, well, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I was going to have a, uh, an ownership in the thing, but Cable television is just starting to dust. He says, just stop right there. <laughs> he said, I have just made a deal to go in and run. Jim Crockett is going to accelerate the thing, and he's going to run the Carolinas, and he's bringing me in as the booker. And he said, you're going to be with me. We're wow. partners again. And I said, wow. And I said, do I need to call Jimmy Crockett? He said, nope. Pack your things, get in your car, and head for Charlotte. And he said, I will have a deal in place for you. And he said, you will be okay. Don't worry. I said, all right, Dream. And that's what I did. I, uh, I left and went to Charlotte. 
and Dusty had, get, had worked it out for a decent guarantee to get me started, and that was the beginning of uh, what, what ended up a, an incredible run. And then, like you say, Arn uh, had been down in Pensacola, and he came in, and um, he did that one interview that uh, you know we still talk about today, where he, he and they had put me with Tully and 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 Ole initially, and so Arn. Arn came in and he did that thing on TV where he says, take a good look at your screen. He said, never have four guys monopolized the industry as we are now. He said, you'd have to look in your history books to try and find some something comparable. And he said, you'd have to look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse and held up four fingers. It just it was a throwaway, throwaway line because Arn always – always was thinking and his interviews be different. So we go to Greensboro that night and the whole first row of people were dressed with shirts and ties on, which I did then. And they're holding up the four fingers and they're yelling horse horsemen. Caught on. And it was like a week or so week to two went by and Jimmy Crockett said, what's this four horsemen crap I keep hearing about? I said, uh, I suggest that maybe you kind of embrace it. Cause I said, it's not something, it's a seed that Arn threw out there in that moment, and it had it had legs with the fans, and they're yeah. the ones running with it. They're the ones, and that and it's, it, it's going to be successful because yeah. it's their idea. And he was yeah. true. It was true. And it just, uh, it took off and, and, and yeah, made history. It turned into a forest. I mean, of, uh, is it? Yeah. Oh, God. It, it is. Yes. It's, it's amazing. You look back. That uh, you know, as much even today, you see, you know, the people they see you guys is all four fingers. I mean, it's uh, there's nothing really in sports entertainment to, that you know, there's a few, maybe a few things, but yeah. that stand out more than that. All you have to do is hold up the four fingers, and I'm sure. Yeah. And and, and Arn, it was a, because Arn used to really think and have tried to have different interviews, and he said, "Take a look at these four people." He said, "To try to to try and find a comparison of." anything that that four people would totally dominate the industry they're in he said you'd have to get away from mm -hmm. wrestling and you'd have to go back to four horsemen of the apocalypse held up four fingers and that night in greensboro i remember fans were yelling horsemen and holding up four fingers and from the ring even if we couldn't hear them or didn't know who we were we would just give the four fingers sign back and it, it just grew from there i remember going to uh, uh, the omni and and then we did an outdoor show, and there were like 60,000 people there. And I remember looking up, and you could just see the people holding their hands up that it became something that yeah. they were a part of. Well, and you mentioned, uh, and, J.J., that it wasn't like you guys worked together all the time. You didn't have to. You just you were identified together. I think you called it a faction. Yes. But that you also you genuinely yep. liked each other. I mean, you hung out. So it, it really That's was yep. uh, the Four Horsemen. I mean. It was. It was four guys who generally got along with each other. And to this day, you know, you know, Arn has become my closest friend in the business. And uh, he, he called me the other day. We got a show coming up and he, he texted me and he said, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that I'm going to get to see you so you and I can have some time together. I mean, it's just there's a. Um, it's hard to believe. I mean, it is after all these years, all these decades. Yeah, that they, yeah. Uh, and in this business, you you have business associations, 
and the number of 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 really true friendships is is a very small circle and that was what was unique about about the horseman thing that uh you know whether it's arn and especially with tully because or, or with barry too uh when uh, I was working Amarillo and Mulligan and Murdoch bought the territory and Barry was, uh, Barry was hauling the ring, wanted so bad to be a wrestler and Jack would have no, would not hear of it. I mean, it, 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 you, you couldn't even, you, <laughs> you didn't want to incur his wrath by even mentioning it. And so Barry used to tell me, and so one night, I think it was Fort Stockton. So I told Barry, I said, it won't be advertised. Don't say anything to anybody. But bring your tights, and I'll, and we'll have uh, an opening match that's not advertised. And it was. I went in, and you could tell from the first moment that we locked up that here's somebody, kind of like almost looking back myself when I started as a referee that nobody ever trained me, but I saw so much that. I mimicked what I was seeing and came across as being experienced and polished because I had seen it so often. And that's what happened there. And it was easier to ask Jack's forgiveness rather than ask him for permission if, uh, if Barry could wrestle. And it was like after I thought, oh boy, you know, I'm going to have to, I don't want to fight Jack, but he, you know, and it was like once it was done, Jack wasn't angry. He would never give his permission if you kept asking. But once it had happened, and and it wasn't like saying positive things about somebody just because of who they were. He just was that talented. He was a natural, natural talent. And Jack wasn't mad, and that was the beginning of, of – Barry is probably as good – I can't think of anything better in my entire career. I've had 3,200 matches. I've been around the business for – for forever and as far as a talent that had the size had the youthful good looks and had and had the ability in the ring to do anything and everything i don't think there's anybody better than barry windham that's saying a lot um and there were quite a few other horsemen who stepped in here and there uh what what's the real story with why all Ole didn't last in the horseman Ole at the time uh his son was uh, mm-hmm. a senior in high school and, and wrestling as an amateur. And Ole wanted to go to all of his uh, high school meets to mm-hmm. see his son wrestle. And so that's the reason that Ole wasn't there a lot. And so it, it, he ended up getting eased out of the thing. Arn came in and and it wasn't there was no hard feelings because Ole was doing, he was living his dream, seeing his son wrestle and being able to go and see him and not be hurting the promotion where he had made his living. So sometimes things just work out and that, and, and that, that's yeah, what happened to think in that back case. after, but <laughs> and, and Ole, Ole was up in years and, um, he, he, when you looked at the, like with Flair doing the, well, the limousine yeah, right. riding, jet flying, kiss stealing, son of a gun with the other guys. Now, even with me, you know, it's like, I could sit you there with hang. this, like, 
<laughs> silly grin on my face that is like, okay, the old fart, you know, he's loving hanging with the guys and being around the chicks. Only it didn't work. No matter how you tried to, no matter how you tried to paint it, sell it, it just he. Nah, nah, nah we could we buy the we buy the package, but yeah. Well, you not mentioned only. you mentioned Rick. I and, mean, my and, God, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be around him every night. Oh, uh, oh, uh, God, yeah. No sleep. Yeah, uh, uh, just constant partying, and and yet, yeah, uh, never missing a beat in the ring. Somehow, <laughs> no. Just he's the greatest for champion. A number of reasons, yeah. I've seen, he's, you know, I mean, Luthez for twenty five years was champion, but in terms of, yeah. you know, the modern era, uh, mm-hmm. nobody better than Flair. I mean, he he and he lived the gimmick, you know, the robes, and when he was starting in the Carolinas, you know, he hired the limousine and the driver, so he invested in in his career, and and had the talent to live the, yeah, the persona. Up. And yeah. backed it all up. Yeah, he did. And again, I just right place, the right time. That was my, you know, all these pieces came together, and I was always a part of it. And uh, I say the luckiest guy in the world, and well, I, I really and, am. Uh, as we mentioned, the uh, the McMahon to McMahon, and then uh, you know, is, and it's when we uh, kind of met up back then with the WWF when you arrived. Um. Was that uh, another opportunity? Did you see uh, it was time to go, or were you looking for it, or did it come to you? How did how did the arrival in in uh, you know the other completion of this of this life mission of yours <laughs> to be involved with the McMahons? Uh, how did it come about? Well, the thing in '89 that uh, uh, Terry Garvin Terry Garvin had been. In, in working with Crockett and I'd worked together, Terry ran towns. And so he and I worked very, very yeah. closely together. And, um, he was close friends with Pat Patterson. And I met Pat one time when he came, came and visited with Terry. And of course I'd heard, heard about Pat and, and he and Stevens and all the records that they broke in California and up in, in Minneapolis. And, uh, he, you know, he just had the reputation of being not only a great in-ring talent, but a great mind yeah. for the business, too. And uh, just um, it, I'm trying to think of where I was going. But the, in, in terms of an opportunity yeah. up there, um, Terry, Vince was going to, going to, let's see, Crockett was, Crockett was selling the promotion. And so it was like, everything was up in the air about what was going to happen to everybody. And this new company was, had, was buying the promotion, but they weren't wrestling people and what was going to happen. So everybody was kind of looking for, um, maybe an, an, an escape hatch if, if necessary. So Terry, uh, went to work, went up first and he was going to go run towns. And so Terry would come to me and he'd say, um, you know, they're looking at going the next step. And he said, your, your name is mentioned a lot. And he said, a lot of good things are being said about you. And they said, the thing is though, because you're here. And I think, I don't know if I had a contract that had run out and I, I, I think it did. And I was, so I didn't actually have a, a contract. And he said, but they, they're, they don't want to call you. You would have to call them. And that's how it happened. So one day, uh, I, 
worth worth looking into. And so I called Terry one day, and Terry said, "Oh God, wait a minute, hold on, let me go get Pat." He goes next to, to the to the next office, brings in. I hear the door slam. Pat, that's Pat's on the phone, and he said, "Oh, I hear so many great things about you. Looking forward to meeting you." And and so it was right before the holidays, and I was going to to uh, go up to New York with my. They, we weren't married yet. We, we were married that following year. But uh, I was going up to New York, and we were going to do shopping in, in, in New York City. And I was going to stay in, in Manhattan at the Marriott Marquis. So Pat, uh, they said, well, Vince, Vince would like to personally meet you. And he said, he doesn't. Nobody in the office knows that there's been any conversation because if the conversation didn't go anywhere, he doesn't want to jeopardize what you have in Atlanta by word getting out. And he said, so this is something that no, nobody in the office even knows. So I was at the Marriott Marquis and the, I was told that a car would be sent in and let him pick me up and not take me to the office, but take me to Vince's house. In Greenwich. And I remember I got there yeah, in Greenwich a few minutes early and Vince came in finished his promos on TV and didn't even have time to take the makeup off, came in, sat down. And, um, so he, he said that he wanted to offer me a job and he said, but I'll be honest with you. He said, I, I'm not looking at you as an on-air talent. And I said, well, I don't have a problem with that to start with. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I've heard so many good things about your um, attention to detail, television production. Your, I mean, your background is so, so uh, varied and complete in our industry. And he said, I, I, I would hire you for that, and, but with the understanding that I'm not looking for you to go on TV. I said, well, that's not a problem with me because – uh, I mean, I've had my share of exposure in the limelight and the chance to come work for you and what have you. So he offered me, he said, uh, and I said, the only thing is my, my year before I had my best year in the business, which back in those days, I, I made a $220,000 that year, which with the salaries the guys make today is nothing. Back compared. Then is but back in then that was that was a lot of money. And I said, the only thing is, I said, I don't want to take, he said, as a salaried employee, he said, it's different than being a talent. I said, I understand that. But at the same time, I don't want to take uh, a huge step back salary wise. I mean, I've got to. So Vince said, okay, let me think about it. So I think Vince said, I made two twenty, and he said he was going to put me on salary with full benefits and everything for like two hundred thousand. And it was before I got married, and we were living together. And I said, well, "Let me go home and run it by her." But I and I said, "I'll give you an answer the next day." And and I I took the offer, which never looked back from, and which was very generous, very very yeah, generous. You had a good run. Um, and, how would you describe though your your position? Yeah. Because I remember you doing everything. I, I just remember you would be in. When we'd be doing yeah. interviews, you'd be in the the box. Uh, you were talking to yep. talent. You were uh, running between Vince. I mean, how how what did how would you describe your position? <laughs> well, I, I wasn't. It wasn't about 
a yeah. title. <laughs> that that wasn't important to me. And it's basically my body of work. I had done just about everything that you could possibly do from put the ring up the referee yeah. into whatever. And uh, I understood uh, the, the makeup of a television show and producing a television show and being able to uh, uh, manage talent. I mean, not manage talent in the, in the traditional manage right. on TV as a manager, but, but be able to handle a roster and deal with people. Because they're, yeah. you know, it's like they're, anything they're else. All different. And know how to, it was like uh, being a. They're all uh, different. You know, baseball manager. You had to know uh, all these personalities. Yes. Yes, and the thing is, my background was so varied that really I had done it all. So no matter who I was talking to, I could relate to whatever their position mm -hmm. was at that time, and I had walked a mile in their shoes. So I knew how to talk to them. I knew what they wanted to talk about and what was important to them, and so. You know, timing-wise, it just all fell in place for me. And I, I, keep, I keep saying I'm the luckiest guy in the face of the earth. But I really paid my dues. And it was the whole body of my work and the longevity that prepared me for that moment to be able to put in that position yeah. and make that kind uh, of money. And, and, you know, and I used to uh, – what always amazed me about you guys that were – you know, I didn't mind revolving around that sun. That was nice, you know, to be a planet or a moon or moony out there. But you guys were like close as you could get. I mean, eventually you got to melt. I don't know how you could do it. But what was it like? Because I know, I mean, I don't know if you were around Vince twenty four seven like Pat and Bruce were on call at, at any time. Yeah, pretty. But was pretty that much, the same thing for you? And how much. in the world did you balance that? Um, I was in the office, suit and tie, yeah. all week. And all the and all the and Vince was hands on. He did look at you know if it was a poster for a pay per view, he had to give his stamp of approval. So he would come in and out of meetings, but all of the creative was done on the weekends in his home in Greenwich. And so it was really a seven day a week thing. But I was being paid paid good money, and um, got along with Pat, and Pat understood Vince. Yeah, that's a secret to the, yeah. And yeah. knew Vince's likes. He knew Vince's likes and dislikes. And so the things that he knew Vince didn't like, Pat would never have allowed that to be put out on the table because he said, oh, Vince won't like that. Yeah. We won't ever bring that up. And we knew what he did like. And I got along with Pat. I really did. And um, we would work. It was like when we would do, the back those days, we were doing three three different television shows. And we were taping every third week and doing three days and, and doing three, you know, three hours of TV and then a dark match. And it was like, oh, God. it really was Those TV uh, tapings. Oh, my God. It, I mean, uh, I yeah. don't know. I don't know how anybody survived, yeah, them. To, especially then you guys yeah, would get trying, into, you know, we get in the jet and the fly energy. home. But then I, I think they went to the house, yeah. too. I don't know when Vince McMahon ever slept and when you guys did either. It was he he would Vince would uh, he never asked anybody to do anything right, that right. he didn't do himself, and he would have a he would have a, a legal pad on his nightstand with a pencil, and he would wake up in the middle of the night, turn the light on, whether it was a dream or a thought that came to him, and for fear that he would forget about it in the morning or think it was just a dream, he would jot it on that yeah. that tablet, and so he was really into the business, and just. Uh, 
just a brilliant man with, with what he's done and where he's taken the business. And I, you know, I, I got along with Vince and we would work all day at his house. We'd be out by the pool and, I'm, and I watched Stephanie grow up. Didn't see Shane that much because he was running around with his buddies. But yeah, Stephanie would be there with his girlfriend, sl- <laughs> splashing in the splashing in the pool, and we'd be yeah. under the cabana in case it rained, and you have a bank of phones. And and uh, Pat and I had a great big ledger that would because we were running three towns a night, and it, it was frustrating at sometimes because we would do TV every third week, and we would have three blank sheets for the three weeks of TV that we were having to produce the next day. And we would start on a Saturday and Vince, instead of getting those sheets and writing anything down, he would go to WrestleMania the following year that may be 10 months, 11 months away. And he wanted an idea in his own mind of what his main event was going to be for that WrestleMania. And then he would say, I could do this for, Royal Rumble, I could do this for a challenge, whatever. And he he wanted to back up from there, which which was good strategic planning. The only thing in the wrestling business, if you if in the if he had this great plan with Ultimate Warrior, and all of a sudden the Warrior tries to hold him up at the Garden for money, and Vince fires him, you might as well take that plan and just shred it. Now you got that was in a way frustrating that you would spend all, all that time for that long range plan that was susceptible to uh yeah and you're worried about Monday. Apart before. <laughs> oh yeah uh, yeah uh, crazy but but we we you know we would uh we would do the tvs and we would book the towns and we would he you would have the main town so you would have to have like two main events and then your other town was like usually a b town and a c town and then we would get them down and then Vince would let Pat and I would, then we would have a roster with a list of, it was yeah. very well organized. And I learned a lot. I'd have a sheet with all the names of the heels kind of in the old pecking approximate pecking order of importance and all the bait. And you'd be able to, to scratch talent out and place them, move people around. It was very structured, all thought out. And with people who had been in the business all their life that like with Pat, and myself, you know, we could just make it work. And, and we had such a successful run in there. And the understanding was that everything, Vince took credit for everything good and no, no, they never mentioned for anything that wasn't good. And we would have this big, big ledger with the things and, so we finally wrote things and changed things and moved stuff around. And invariably, when we went to TV, Vince would sit in the front of the room, open his ledger, and then he would do the production meeting, presenting it as if everything came from him right there. And Pat and I would have our books in the back, and we'd be we'd already we had done all this together. <coughs> and what would have happened? Not it didn't happen all that often, but. Sometimes things would change. Oh, we, let's do them. We trace, race this and move somebody here. And Vince would forget to make the change in his book. Now he's up there starting to, to go. And all of a sudden I look at Pat, Pat looks at me and I raise my hand in the back of the room yesterday. I said, Vince, I have a note here that I think you changed your mind and said that you wanted to do this. Yes. 
I forgot you're right. I just you know how to present. That it. was my thinking. I didn't write it down. It, <laughs> yeah, it was still a, Vince's idea coming from him. Oh, well, very yeah. diplomatically, handled. and because because we weren't there to. It wasn't there about trying to send the message to all these people. Well, you know, you all think it's Vince, but, uh, you know, we didn't have that. We were paid well and the system worked well and we didn't need to send the, send the impression that somehow that we were such an important part of it. Yeah. It was just, it was amazing how they, they put that all together. And and, uh, as I mentioned, you know, you, uh, you, you're revolving around the sun, which is uh, Vince. And eventually it's, it's, it's too much. I don't know how Pat lasted for as many years as he, he has, and uh, Bruce is back. But yeah. what was it? I mean, was it to a point where it was, you know, it, it was too much? Because, like you said, Vince doesn't expect any, anybody to do anything he doesn't do, but he's a maniac as far as yes. his work ethic. Yep. So he's 24-7. Was it just too much, or what, what, he, what, he, what finally did it come down to? I call it the seven-year itch, and you you hear about it in, yeah, in yeah. personal relationships that you know they get together and after seven years, they just get so tired of each other or something that 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 what you were tolerating during this thing of seven years reaches a point where it's not tolerable yeah, it's anymore. Too much. And I think with Vince, it was the same way. Uh, really. I was there seven years and <clears throat> yeah, it just reaches the point where, you know, and you, your family gives up a lot because you're in the office all week. You're, and I didn't have to go to, I only went to the garden and, um, but we, we, if we didn't have the garden, we had, we worked at the house on weekends and very seldom. And you, a lot of times didn't know you couldn't plan anything. Right. It, and Pat, Pat, had Louie at the time, who was still living, and so Pat didn't have a life. I had a family, and I wanted to be, you know, Lindsay and I got married but uh, while I was there, but I, I wanted to be with, yeah. I wanted time with her. I wanted some kind of balance in my life. Pat didn't have that same need because he had Louie, and they'd been yeah. together 25 years, and his his personal situation was different than mine. And I was willing to work all week, work on weekends, but then I I did want some time mm-hmm. with my family, and and that that uh, that sometimes was a struggle to be able to 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 get that time. And my wife was very understanding. We would we did well financially. Uh, I was, you know, like I say, Vince had a jet, and, and very few people flew on it, but I was one of them. And Vince would have it uh, catered with, uh, you know, with, with shrimp and lobster. And I mean, those things are not as important to me. But at the time, it's nice that because you're working so hard and there are some sacrifices with your family. So these were some of the little things that uh, whether I mean, Vince wanted it for Vince, but he also wanted you to be included because that was a way of kind of doing yeah. something for you too that uh to show his appreciation for so how when, hard you when worked. you left was it a, a conversation with vince did you have did you tell him i just can't do this anymore how did it uh how did it end with you two he brought in a girl he brought in a one one of the girls she was a woman uh that 
she was in charge. She in the pecking chain. She was actually, I was an executive vice president, but she was above me and I reported to her and she, her two brothers were connected with the NFL. And so she, she, she was a player and, um, we would go to the, to the hotel on the road. And of course she'd be on the hotel too. And then she, we'd go up there to check in and she's, and I want a room night next to JJ, oh you know, and it's like, yeah. And it, nothing ever happened, but it was the perception of what might be going on that she, yeah, you know where I'm going. It just, and it, yeah. And it kind of at times made me uncomfortable, but, uh, she was my boss, and uh, uh, and I, I would like if we would go to a TV in Baltimore. We would drive Baltimore. She had a a, a, a flat in in Manhattan, so she would say, "Well, I want you to come in and pick me up, and and I want to drive with you." I'd say, "Okay," so I would I would go into Manhattan, pick her up, and she would come out. And she'd have a I had a sweet tooth, and she had a bag with all these candies that i liked and she'd put them in the middle of the console and um yeah, you felt kind of felt harassed it just <laughs> uh, it works both I ways it can happen it i don't want to say harass yeah harassed is maybe too strong a word but but it was um enough. it was enough yeah yeah it was enough that i wasn't comfortable and and it was like I think Vince and Pat, it's like if you see somebody that's that steps on a hot payment and has to dance because their feet are burning, I think Vince and Pat enjoyed, knew, could see what was going on. And she was an older woman, and I'm Lindsay. Lindsay was 13 years younger than me. I had a young woman, a young wife, good, really good looking woman. And so. They they enjoyed watching me having to try and yeah watching me squirm around what was obviously somebody with her you know we would check out I'm put my room make sure my room is next to JJ you know and Pat and Vince would look and roll their eyes a little smirk and I'd have to just sit there with a straight yeah. face you know it's like, but it also sounds like you were ready uh, at at that point is that true yeah after after seven years. Um, and I don't remember the. I don't remember what. Ah, part of what happened was the, uh, the 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 legal thing, and everybody's salaries were yeah. cut for a yeah. period of time, uh, and so that was a, a and, and the, the salary was eventually restored. But, uh, and after seven years, it's like. I ended up going to Atlanta, and I had the exact same position. I was executive vice president of talent relations, and basically, the, I, I I went for the same money, maybe even a little bit more money, and ended up staying there seven years. So I've I've had a yeah. a great career. I I if I remember when I went to uh, Dusty's memorial service after Dusty passed, who God, he was close. Yeah. Yeah, for me and uh a lot of people yeah and that was a tough one and i was sitting there flair and his flair's wife and i i was sitting in the uh in the thing and in comes uh, vince linda 
uh, Shane and Stephanie, and they sat in the row right in front of us. And then there, uh, there was, I don't know if it was the breaker when the thing was over. And Vince is out, and you know, of course, everybody wanted to, you know, wanted to have their moment talk to Vince. And I walked outside, and all of a sudden, Vince turned around and saw me and made eye contact, and it's like JJ. <laughs> and, like yesterday. You know, it's like. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, two old brothers that hadn't seen each other in a family reunion, and and it was like, yeah, it was that corny running up, and he hugged me, and I hugged him, and God, Vince, how you doing? God, you look great. Yeah, you look great. I was thinking everything's going good, you know, and so I left with no, no bad feelings, no ill will, um, and I call the seven-year itch. I think, I think, best of times because of the 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 demands that the business has on you and demands on your personal life you you it's hard because you can't do it part-time or you can't do it halfway you've got to be it's, all in it's 24 yeah. 7 and yeah. consumes your whole life it's all in and to be successful that's the commitment that you have to make and i and knowing where i came from and, and my history in the business all of a sudden I'm a top executive for the greatest player in the business that's a global thing. I mean, people would have died to have my position. And I never was, it wasn't an ego thing with me or I never, uh, never went yeah. to my head. No, I, Trust uh, me, uh, yeah, never went I'm to sure, my head. I'm sure many, many people I'll, would say that. And my up. last question, uh, JJ, as we wrap up here, and, and one thing I really like about the WWE Hall of Fame is that they're not celebrating just time spent with the WWF, WWE. They're celebrating uh, accomplished careers. And, and, and it's full circle when I think you guys stand on that stage. And so with that in mind, what did it mean to you to uh, be inducted? Ah, it meant a lot because, it, you, you know, you hit, you get accolades for what you've done. And, and I, I don't I don't want to sound corny, but I, I, I am by nature of a humble person and I am thankful. And I, and when I do interviews in the ring, the last thing that I, that I always try to say is to, to point to the fans that are sitting there and to say that my success was not because I was the biggest, the best, because I wasn't. I was surrounded because a lot of times the horsemen will be in, in the other corner. And I was blessed to be able to be around guys. But I said, the ultimate judge and jury for all of it is you people sitting out here. Because you're the people who saw us, that we there was something that we had that, that garnered your attention. And that you people work hard for your money. And that you were willing to spend the money to come see us. So it's you that I, that I salute who have supported professional wrestling have supported the four horsemen and have supported me for my entire career. Well, that's fantastic. And, and JJ, really, it's uh, been uh, awesome chatting with you. It's been a long time since we really got a chance to sit down and chat. Mm. And uh, I hope we can catch up on those baseball stories. Next time we see each other, let's have a beer. And I'm, I've got some great <laughs> ones to tell you. But uh, I know you got some other things going on. you got another uh, podcast happening. How can folks tune in? Uh, to the uh, this version of the J.J. Dillon show. Yeah, it's, it's on at 6.05. On Saturdays? And I yeah. I, on Saturdays, and I think it's the Major League Wrestling Network uh, 
uh, we've been doing it for just a couple weeks and uh, the feedback has been excellent from what I'm told. I don't listen. I've never listened to my own podcast and I, I don't yeah. listen to other podcasts. So I don't know if it's good or bad, but I am by nature a storyteller and um, people who have, have commented the things that stick out to me that make me feel good are we like that that when you do your podcasts and, and or, or any kind of an interview, you're not an angry person. It's not like yeah, you're not, uh, you know, you've had all the success. You have yeah. nothing to be angry about. But a lot of people in this industry, when they do an interview, are angry about something or somebody yeah. or whatever. And you're not. And that I don't, I don't use colorful language. I don't swear. I don't swear at home. So why would I do it on an interview? It'd be yeah. totally unlike me. And, uh, I just, I've, I, as a kid, 16 years old, I fell in love with wrestling and I've had an unbelievable career that, uh, just one thing fell in place for me after the other. And now I, all of a sudden, you know, I'm in my seventies and I, and I'm, I've got two yeah. hall of fame rings. And I still get asked to go and appear at, at at shows and fan fests and things, and and I still love getting out with the people and hearing their stories about what their memories are of me. If if we had met before or hadn't, um, it never gets old, never gets tired. Well, JJ, thank you so much for coming on Prime Time. Thank you. I've enjoyed Prime Time, and uh, I I tend to get long winded, but I I hope your listeners. Uh, have enjoyed the conversation and uh, and would love to continue it at some time in the future.